We'll now hear argument in case 07440, Rothgary v. Giuseppe County, Texas. Ms. Spinelli. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in Brewer and Jackson, this Court held that an initial appearance before a magistrate like the one here marked the commencement of a criminal prosecution under the Sixth Amendment. This case demonstrates why that holding makes eminent sense. Rothgary was arrested on the erroneous belief that he was a felon in possession of a firearm. As required by the Texas Code, he was brought before a magistrate who informed him of the felony accusation against him and required him to post bail or remain in jail to ensure that he answered that accusation. At that point, Rothgary acquired specific rights under Texas law as the accused in a felony case, including the right to have the prosecution against him dismissed if an indictment or information were not filed within a set period, and the right to contest the accusation against him prior to indictment in an examining trial before the magistrate. At that point, Rothgary was no longer merely a suspect, but an accused within the meaning of the Sixth Amendment. Uh, Counsel, how can this, how can this be part of an adversary proceeding when there's no other adversary on the field? Prosecution's not present. They don't even know anything about this. Um, Mr. Chief Justice, this Court held in Jackson that the question whether a particular Well, in Jackson, of course, the charges had already been filed by the prosecutor, so there was an adversary on the field. What I was going to say was that um, there's a clear distinction, which is set forth in this Court's opinion in Jackson, between the question whether a particular proceeding initiates a criminal prosecution and whether that proceeding itself is adversarial, um, in the sense that it requires the presence of defense counsel. And as to the first question, whether a particular proceeding initiates a criminal prosecution, this Court's cases have not held that prosecutorial involvement is a relevant factor. And well, I suppose, I suppose you could have an adversary proceeding without the prosecutor present, but it would depend on the nature of the proceeding. And here the magistrate simply advises the uh, uh, individual of the charges against him, repeats uh, the, the Miranda warnings, advises him that he can have counsel if bail is denied or, or if he can't make bail. What about that is uh, adversarial? That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice, and we don't contend that it is adversarial. Um, in Jackson, this Court made clear that a proceeding need not itself be adversarial in the sense that would require defense counsel to be present to counter the adversary presentation of the prosecutor in order for that proceeding to initiate a criminal prosecution. Rather, it held that the initial appearance itself, regardless of those other factors, marked the commencement of a prosecution. And it's worth noting that in Jackson, substantially the same arguments that respondent raises here were made by the state there. The state there contended this initial appearance is merely an administrative ministerial proceeding. Well, I guess I'll get back to the point I raised earlier, that in Jackson, 
charges had already been filed by a prosecutor. Prosecutor was aware of this proceeding. I think that's a fairly significant distinction. Well, the court in Jackson placed no weight on that distinction. That wasn't something that was mentioned in Jackson. And what happened in Jackson um, was that warrants were obtained, the defendants were arrested, and they were brought before a magistrate for this initial proceeding. There's no indication that the prosecutor was present at that initial proceeding. The Jackson Court, the Jackson Court put no weight on that factor. And none of this Court's cases have ever stated that there's a requirement that a prosecutor be involved. And that makes sense, because the consequences of the initial appearance for the defendant are precisely the same, whether or not a prosecutor is involved. But what we're looking for here, uh, at least one of the things we might look for in this case, is a specific rule to give to the State so the State knows when counsel has to be appointed. In this case, suppose the magistrate, the man behind the little window, uh, said, we're going to give you a, a, a ticket, keep in touch with us, uh, don't change uh, your address until you notify us you're free on your own recognizance. Would a counsel have been required then? Had there been no way in which the defendant was bound to a reappear and answer the charges, then we would not have the situation that we have, and it would seem less likely that that would initiate a criminal proceeding. The factors that we have here that make it clear that a prosecution was initiated, just as it was in Jackson on identical facts. Ms. Benelli, there's a, uh, something confusing about uh, your presentation on this, because you say that at this initial appearance that's called a magistration, you are not contending that there was a right to counsel at that very proceeding. That's correct, Justice So when, at what point in time, did this right to counsel attach? If it didn't attach during that magistration proceeding, when did it attach? Well, first I should say, I believe that that question goes to respondents' alternative argument for affirmance. The only question that was addressed by the Fifth Circuit and the only question presented in the petition was the question whether a criminal prosecution commenced at Rothgary's magistration. And we are certainly not asking this court to direct the entry of judgment in our favor. Any, I mean, but, they, but, they, merely, but you are taking the position that there was a right to counsel that attached in this case. And I'm asking you at what point in time that right attached. We believe that, well, this Court's cases have made clear that the right to counsel attaches at the time a criminal prosecution commences. Now, the question whether counsel must then be appointed immediately upon attachment um, is a separate question. What does attachment mean? What attachment means under this Court's cases is that since a criminal prosecution has now begun, the explicit guarantees of the Sixth Amendment are applicable. The State no longer, um, the State cannot interfere after that point with 
the attorney-client relationship. Well, At I'm that point, the defendant has the right to counsel to serve as an intermediary. Well, if Mr. Roth, if your client had shown up at the magistration with an attorney, could the State of Texas have said, no, your attorney may not be present during the magistration? No, I don't believe so, because — Well, does that mean that the right attached prior to the magistration? We believe that the right attached at the magistration. At the beginning? At the end? Upon the magistration. So perhaps — So at the — I suppose I would say at the end. Then why could Texas have said your attorney — why could Texas have not said, although you came here with an attorney, your attorney may not be present, because you don't have a Sixth Amendment right to counsel at the magistration? Your right hasn't attached yet. It won't attach until the end. Well, I believe that it would attach at the time that the magistrate informed the defendant of the accusation against him, at which point he became a defendant in a criminal case and his right to counsel attached. Now, to get back to Justice Ginsburg's question, whether counsel is required to be appointed immediately upon attachment is a separate issue, which is the subject of Respondent's alternative ground for affirmance. We are merely asking this Court to resolve the threshold question, which is the threshold question in every right to counsel case, did a criminal prosecution commence at Roddenberry's magistration? The two are kind of related. If, in fact, there's not a right to counsel upon the magistration, but as you said earlier to Justice Alito, it attaches at the end of the magistration, it seems to me like you're asking for counsel to be an investigator rather than participate in the trial proceedings. No, I don't believe so, Your Honor. This Court has said that a defendant does not have a right for a lawyer to act as a pre-charge private investigator. But our contention is that Roddenberry was charged at his magistration. At that point, he became an accused, which is demonstrated by the structure of the Texas Code itself. How is that different from a traffic ticket? It's very different from a traffic ticket, Justice Kennedy, because in that situation — I think that situation would be analogous to a warrantless arrest, which, as we know, does not commence adversary judicial proceedings. Here, we have an arrest. We have a person who has been held for a period of time. So it's the warrant that makes the difference? No, I don't believe so. I believe it's the magistration. Or the incarceration. Would your case be different if, after the magistration, the — your client was free to go? The Court said, you know, this is what you've been arrested for and charged with by the policeman who brought you in. We'll, you know, goodbye. Whereas in this case, he was required to make bail. Suppose he hadn't been required to make bail. Supposing he was free to go. If he had not been required to make bail or make any other binding promise to appear, which is the function of bail to ensure that the defendant will answer the accusation, then we would be lacking that piece of evidence that he had been accused. There still would remain other evidence under Texas law that he was, in fact, an accused at that time. Texas 
assuming uh, we agree with that, Texas made one of two uh, possible constitutional violations. Either it was unconstitutional for Texas to require him to make bail, or it was unconstitutional for Texas not to provide him with an attorney. Well, why, I, should, why should we find that the latter was the problem rather than the former? Well, there's certainly nothing un- unconstitutional about requiring bail, as we know. The well, there certainly is if you're not charged. I, 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 I think that's, it's a very strong point in your favor that he was required to make bail, because I don't think you can hold somebody with, without charging him. Just say, you know, uh, well, we, I mean, the, fact have, that, the fact that he was held suggests that he was charged with we something. Have, we agree, Justice Scalia. And, in fact, the Texas Code expressly recognizes that the function of bail is to ensure that the sure. accused will answer the accusation. So maybe, maybe Texas was wrong about that, that it, it shouldn't have uh, required bail. Maybe that was what was unconstitutional, rather than its failure to provide counsel. Well, what occurred here, however, was that Texas did require Mr. Rothgary to post bail, and in addition, the magistration gave rise to certain specific rights, which only accrue to defendants in criminal prosecution. Well, but are you saying that, bail is re- that a magistrate is required whenever bail is set? Pardon me, that an attorney is required whenever bail is set? No, we're not contending that an attorney was Seems required. Your, your rule isn't. I, I, I want to know, what do we tell Texas it has to do in all these cases? What do we tell jurisdictions they have to do with traffic tickets? Does it make a difference that you're held in custody or not held in custody? I, I don't understand the rule you want us to adopt. I think the rule, we're actually not asking the Court to adopt any new rule today, but simply to reaffirm the rule it has already announced in Brewer and Jackson, which is that an initial appearance before a magistrate, which is a proceeding that is common across jurisdictions and has a common significance across jurisdictions, a proceeding at which a magistrate informs the defendant officially of the accusation against him and of his rights as a criminal defendant. But when do you say counsel has to be appointed? Is it before the magistration? Is it at the end, immediately no, upon the end of it? What if, it, what if uh, an attorney had been appointed here 10 days after the magistration? Our contention is that an attorney was required to be appointed promptly after Roth Gary renewed his request for an attorney following the magistration. Okay, and so this the, court what, at the, ma- the, the, the point of the magistration is that is the point at which a reasonable time starts running within which Texas must afford count, appoint counsel. Isn't that your Correct, basic Justice point? Correct, Justice Souter. That's, okay. our, that's our So there's, there's no claim that there was anything invalid about the magistration proceeding itself because there was no counsel there? No, not there's at no all. There's no claim, for example, had there been a probable cause hearing uh, that the attorney would have been required to participate in the probable cause hearing under no. this time. There's simply got to be one appointed within a reasonable time after the magistration. That's that's your argument. That's correct. Okay. Is there any law in that? Is there? Suppose there's an indictment, and the defendant finds out about it. Never arrested. Nothing further happens. Weeks pass. Now, uh, is there any law that tells me it's an indictment? That's clear. Uh, and uh, is there any law that tells me when he requests a counsel be appointed, when they have to do it? Justice Breyer, this court has not 
been faced with the question. So the answer is no. What happens right. if what, what happens if uh, uh, the part that's worrying me, and I don't know how people handle it, a riot, a big sit-in, uh, uh, big demonstrations, 500 people arrested, uh, they're, they're brought down to the station, bail's posted the next day, the U.S. attorney or the uh, DA thinks, I'm going to indict the ringleaders. The rest, you know, the rest we're just going to let go. They'll forfeit their bond. How is that handled? How is it handled under your rule? How is that handled generally? How should it be handled? How is it handled with respect to the persons who were indicted? No, 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 that's easy. I mean, I'm talking about the people whom nobody ever intends to prosecute. What's going to happen, as I think happens quite often, they're brought to the station, they're arrested, they're released on bond, and then everybody forgets about it. If they're or, brought, or, they're, or, they, or the DA says, uh, you know, forfeit, like a traffic ticket or something, forfeit your bond. And I want to know how that's handled under your rule. How is it handled now? How is it handled in response? Discuss it, <laughs> please. If, if a person is arrested, brought to the station house, and then released prior to the initial appearance, which is actually a no, no, you see what I'm doing. I'm trying to make it comparable. What happens there is that these 500 people brought down to the station, they're required to put up bail. They're given a warning, because people might question them. They're given a warning. They're then released. And nothing further is heard. Maybe three months later, they come in and they agree that they'll forfeit their bond. Now, that's what I'm wondering. That must happen because I think there are lots of demonstrations. They occur sometimes. I suspect it happens. How is it handled if you know? It happens quite frequently, Justice Breyer, that persons are arrested, brought to the station house, and then released by the police without undergoing an initial appearance. And in that circumstance, we don't contend that a prosecution would have begun. Why not? If they initiate charges against them. You're saying in Justice Breyer's hypothetical, you're charged with, for example, trespassing or uh, conducting a demonstration on the court grounds, and that's that's a crime. You're charged with that, but we're not going to hold you, so, you know, well, back in a month. It, it might depend on the manner in which the charges are conveyed or filed. If all that happens is that the police tell you you know, we believe you've committed a crime, certainly that doesn't commence a prosecution. If there's a formal, you know, as happens in misdemeanor prosecutions, if there's a formal complaint filed, which can be the basis for a conviction in a misdemeanor case, then um, it may be that by analogy to an indictment in a felony case, a prosecution would commence at that point. What, what, about, would, what about my traffic ticket? I don't I've never had one, so I don't know what they say, other members of the court. I, I believe, advise I, me about that. I believe a ticket or a citation of that nature would not commence adversary judicial proceedings because it's analogous to a warrantless arrest. Why doesn't it solve your, your, the problem that you're obviously wrestling with? If, if we simply said there's a right to counsel, but it doesn't attach until there's a significant stage of the prosecution, which then follows. I mean, if you have some proceeding afterwards, yes, then you do need a lawyer. But the mere fact that you've been brought to the courthouse and, 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 and uh, made bail 
and let go does not require 500 counsel to be provided. Only, only when there's some later proceeding, which is a, an essential part of the, of the prosecution, must you have counsel? Why well, wouldn't that solve the problem? First of all, we agree that a prosecution commences upon a first appearance before a judge. That's fine, but, but you only need counsel at significant phases. Oh, right. And, and right. we're not contending that counsel must be present at that initial appearance itself. Right. So just to be clear about that, but to address your question, which Again, I believe goes to respondents' alternative ground for affirmance. Rather, no, but it's so wrapped up with how we decide this case. I mean, if I think that counsel has to be appointed right away for for for, for Justice Breyer's uh, 500 demonstrators, I'm going to give a different answer to the first question. But if if I know that counsel doesn't have to be appointed until the prosecution proceeds to some significant phase where an attorney would be would be really helpful. Then, uh, then I can I can be quite uh, more sympathetic well, to your uh, to your argument. Were the court to reach that alternative argument, which is that despite the fact that a criminal prosecution had commenced and Rothgary wasn't accused by hypothesis, he nevertheless was not entitled to the assistance of counsel for his defense because no critical stage had been reached. We would say. First of all, assuming that respondent is correct that the right to counsel lies dormant following its attachment on the commencement of a criminal prosecution until some subsequent critical stage is reached. If we assume that that is correct, there was such a stage here because Mr. Rothgary was faced with um, the decision whether or not to invoke his right to an examining trial. But that was at the magistration, and you, you have said that there was no right to counsel at the magistrate. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg, but his decision regarding the examining trial was not one that needed to be made at the magistration. Rather, this was a right that he possessed to contest the accusation against him under Texas law, which could only be exercised prior to indictment. And indeed, it was a... time prior to indictment. Correct. And indeed... So you're saying that that is the critical stage that he needed uh, to have counsel's advice about? To the extent that it's necessary to have a critical stage, then we believe that is a critical stage. And that stage would arise immediately as soon as the magistration was completed, right? His He'd right. have to have counsel appointed immediately to well, advise him whether to uh, ask for this. Not hearing. necessarily immediately, but within some reasonable time after his request and after before, he before he said no i don't want an examining trial as soon as he says that then then he can't have one and you're saying he should have had a lawyer before he said that had, well i mean had he said had he waived his right to an examining trial which he didn't do then you know under then we would not have but he could do argument. it anyone else could do it and you would say that once he does that he's made it into a critical proceeding, and so you have to have counsel before he gives up that right. Yes, we're contending that in felony cases, this is only an issue in felony cases, because Texas has provided this right, which is precisely for defendants in Rothgary's situation who are innocent 
But well, then, yeah, but then you are saying that he has a right to counsel at the magistration because that's when the magistrate says, "Look, you have an examining trial coming up, uh, and you can waive your right to that." No, that's a, that's actually not correct. Not correct, Mr. Chief Justice. What does, at he, the say about the exa- what does he say about an examining? Precisely trial? what he said, and what appears on the warning form, is in a felony case, you have a right to an examining trial. There is no provision at the magistration for the defendant to either invoke or waive that right. And there's no indication that any further explanation of that right is given. Do do, do you know any other case in which we've held that it's a critical stage of the proceeding where nothing has happened, but something could have happened if the defendant had asked for it? Well, we're not contending that. I I find it hard to describe that as a critical stage of the proceeding. We're not contending that, Justice Scalia. Our contention is that the examining trial this Court has already held in Coleman is a critical stage. When the trial occurs, it is a critical stage, I have no doubt. But but you're, you're claiming that his decision of whether to ask for that or not is a critical stage, and I just don't know any precedent for saying that something that hasn't happened is a critical stage. I think the strongest precedent for that is Estelle versus Smith, in which this Court held that counsel, counsel's assistance is needed not only to conduct and prepare for critical stages, but also to assist a defendant in deciding whether to undergo them. And more broadly, this Court has repeatedly stated that one of the core purposes of the right to counsel is to ensure that the defendant understands and is able to invoke all of his rights. And in this case, this was the right that he possessed that could have enabled him to demonstrate his innocence prior to being indicted, rearrested, and incarcerated. And he lost that right because he didn't have counsel's help. With the Court's permission, I, I, I know your white eyes. I'm just, well, you, you, when we were talking about traffic tickets, you said, well, that was a warrantless arrest. This was a warrantless arrest. This was a warrantless arrest, but following well, that, that but there was more, because following that, there was, the magistration occurred, at which time the police officer filed an affidavit setting forth the basis of the charges. The magistrate found probable cause, and the magistrate officially informed Rothgary of the accusation against him. And that's why, that's why, while in Kirby, this Court held a warrantless arrest does not commence adversary judicial proceedings. In Jackson, on exactly these facts, the Court held that it does. Um, Well, not exactly these facts, because in Jackson, the prosecutor had already filed charges. um, Charges were filed in Jackson in exactly the same sense that charges were filed here. a document which contained basically simply a factual statement of what had occurred. But the prosecutor wasn't involved here. The prosecutor was involved in Jackson. That's correct, but we don't believe that should make any difference because the effect on the defendant of this proceeding is precisely the same whether or not a prosecutor is involved. And that's true in general and it's true under Texas law. Either way, he's faced with the need to negotiate criminal law in order to contest the charges against him. He has a right to do so under Texas law, and he has a right to have the prosecution against him dismissed if an indictment isn't filed within a set period, all of which we believe demonstrate that he was accused and that a prosecution had commenced. Um, May I reserve the balance of my time? Thank you, Counsel. 
Mr. Coleman. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The magistration that follows every Texas arrest does not begin a criminal prosecution under the Sixth Amendment. When Rothgary was magistrated, no formal charges had been filed against him. No one attempted to elicit incriminating information from him. No witnesses were Then how could they hold him in jail? It is not uncommon. In fact, it is universal practice that uh, when one is arrested on a, on a, uh, without a warrant, uh, it is normally because a police officer sees an individual in the commission of a crime. It's, it's not uncommon to go in to arrest that person, to cease uh, the crime that is taking place, and perhaps to prevent other crimes from taking place, uh, and to present them. Uh, Gerstein makes clear that this happens all of the time. What happened? But this, this was that he was held after that he saw the magistrate. Suppose he'd been held for uh, three months and he couldn't make bail. We don't, we don't need counsel? Texas statute allows for counsel under that situation, but this is an issue that is addressed primarily by the I'm Fourth Amendment. I'm asking what the constitutional rule is. The Fourth we have here a proceeding before a magistrate. This results in custody. Uh, and my question is, suppose this were weeks. Would counsel be required to be appointed? No, Your Honor. The fourth what authority do you have to hold somebody who's not been charged? I mean, I understand that. You, you say he hasn't been charged, but, but we're going to hold you in jail. I, I, that, that's very strange. We, we believe that this is an issue that was addressed by the Court in Gerstein and McLaughlin, that the Fourth Amendment prevents unreasonable seizures and the Sixth Amendment speedy trial rights kick in. And so there, there's a limit on what type of a seizure that you can have, and the Fourth Amendment does prevent that, as do other rights, as the Court recognized in Govea. But the liberty interest that is at stake there, as the Court said in Govea, is not one that, is implica- that implicates the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. If you are other cons- saying, in, in answer to Justice Kennedy's question, that an individual can be brought into court, held in jail for three weeks without charge, and no right to counsel uh, 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 applies. I, I think that's your answer, but I, and I, I want to make sure. I, I'll be candid to say I, I'm surprised, but if, if that's your position, I want to make sure I understand it. Uh, Gerstein says that there must I, be. I want to know what your answer is here. Get, get to authority later, but I want to know whether your position is that an individual may be brought be, by a police officer before a magistrate, charged with no crime, uh, required to post bail, and if he doesn't post bail, be held for three weeks without charge. That cannot happen in Texas. I'm not asking whether it could happen. I'm asking whether it would be constitutional without appointing counsel. It would be not be a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. But it would be a violation of some liberty interest besides the Sixth Amendment. It might very well be a violation of the Fourth Amendment or other Sixth Amendment. What but no counsel, but no counsel you, you, right would attach. No counsel right would attach. <laughs> That's correct. So I think so it's a problem even if you appoint counsel. You say you, you, you can keep people without charging them so long as you give them counsel? It happens all the time, Justice Scalia, where people are appointed counsel, but for whatever reason do not make bail. And no, but no charge is filed? In other words, if the lawyer comes in and says, you know, my client's sitting in jail, you've had him there for three days now, and no complaint has been filed against him, we don't know why he's being held, 
your answer, the, it's, it's constitutional answer to say, we well, you know, that's for us to know and you to find out? I think Gerstein would prevent that, Justice. I mean, the answer, your answer is that the Sixth Amendment is concerned with the fair trial, not the detention of individuals, and he has other constitutional rights that would be implicated, but his right to a fair trial is not one of them. That's absolutely true. What is the law here in Texas on, in respect to this particular magistration proceeding? I noticed what happened is that the magistrate tells the, the, pers- the person arrested, he says precisely, I find probable cause to believe that you, that there was probable cause to arrest you. That's what they say, right? The, it said, I have determined that probable cause existed for the arrest of the individual accused therein. All right, now, what happens, and I think it would be helpful to know the answer to this, in what might be a rare instance, but the truth of the matter is there was probable cause to arrest that individual when he was arrested, but there isn't now. So, because he came, you know, he said, here's 14 cousins. I was somewhere else at the time. They all agree. I mean, everybody agrees on a certain fact that means there isn't now. And what I'm driving at is, does the magistrate here, is he required, does he have the power to commit someone, even though he honestly believes there is no longer probable cause, in which case he's making the decision, the magistrate, not the policeman? I don't know the, the answer to the constitutional significance of the difference. I can, I can think there would be tremendous constitutional significance, and it would make a difference if all that's really happening is a policeman's arresting someone, in which case we might have liberty interests and others at issue. Or what's happening in this proceeding is that the magistrate is deciding that there is probable cause to hold it, in which case it's more like, not completely like, but more like, what happens uh, in an indictment or an arraignment, etc.? What is stated on the form, certainly I can't uh, say what was going through the magistrates. No, no, but I want to know what's, what's Texas law, if you know it, in respect to that question. Texas law, I believe, is that you, that you find that there is probable cause to make the arrest. So we have a magistrate who has to find that there is — no, to make the arrest or to hold him now. You see what I'm doing? I do see, see what why you're I'm doing, doing it. Right, so if, what's, the, what's the answer? I don't think that there's a difference in this case. I think that no, I know there may would, not be. But what about in general? Magistrates have, you know, a great amount of discretion. And I think if a magistrate was convinced that probable cause existed at the time of arrest and not now, it's quite likely that magistrate would find. Okay, not that's what I would cause. think. In which case we have before it, bringing this person before a state official who himself has the power to decide if there is probable cause to hold him, and he's saying, yes, there is probable cause to hold him. That's, that's, that's what's happening. Is that right? I believe so. That's exactly okay. what the Court required in Gerstein, Your Honor. I would like to um, — May I just ask this kind of simple question? If a prosecutor had participated in the magistration, then under Texas law, would the right to counsel have arisen? No, Justice Stevens. Uh, Whether the prosecutor participates is not relevant? There's no role for a prosecutor at a a magistration under Article 1517 of 
the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure. It's, Couldn't it's, he point out, I mean, if, uh, if th- this is a probable cause determination and he knows a particular fact, couldn't he say, well, you know, magistrate, you should know this? And the magistrate will say, well, I didn't know that, so there's no probable cause. That's possible. And I, I would like to amend my answer to you, Justice Stevens. It's not at all uncommon. Once an arrest takes place uh, and an officer can go and present a case to the county or district attorney, it's not uncommon at all for charges then to be filed in the uh, depending on what the crime is in the district court or county court, and for the magistration then to be moved over and to take place in an official court. And so at that time, um, the it right could very well be. And we would say, we would say likely at that point that, that, yes, that formal criminal judicial proceedings had initiated, and, it, and it's not uncommon. But at this well, circumstance... What about the very proceeding ahead in this case, supposing instead of a detective bringing in the affidavit, the prosecutor did it. said, they, they have the uh, detective's affidavit, and the prosecutor says, this is a case we intend to, uh, in, to pursue more seriously. That's all he says to the judge. Would that have been sufficient? No, Justice Stevens. It would in, not. In a, a, I an expression of subjective briefs that the absence or presence of the prosecutor made a difference. <laughs> You're telling me I'm wrong on that. Under the circumstances where no formal charges have been brought, a statement by a prosecutor that they are looking at it or that they intend to bring some is not itself the initiation of formal adversary judicial proceedings. Mr. Coleman, what, what happens in other jurisdictions? I, I, I probably ought to know this, but, 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 but I don't. Maybe you do. When, when you don't have a procedure called magistration, but someone is taken before a magistrate, uh, and with the prosecutor present, is the indictment at that point uh, drawn up, or doesn't the, uh, doesn't the prosecutor have some time to decide what the indictment ought to contain? What, what, what happens at, at that point? An indictment does usually take a little bit more time because it has to be taken and presented to a grand jury. So what happens in the interim? Is he, is he charged in the interim, or, or is he just held because he is going to be charged? which is what, what's going on here. He is, he is not charged during well, that interim. You, but you, you can mean have no complaint needs to be filed by the police? If the magistrate says, what's this guy doing here? Don't the police normally have a complaint? In this case, a, a com, uh, what was it, a possession of, of a gun by a, a felon? And say, well, you know, we're filing this complaint that charges him with possessing a gun uh, with a felony record. And wasn't there such a complaint displayed here? No, Justice Souter. Texas statutes do allow for the filing of a complaint in some circumstances. It's not a frequently used, but that's a complaint that has to be filed in the district court or in what the was justice. Filed by the police? What was filed by the police? Well, nothing was filed. To, just, to justify holding this person. But, you can't just say police brought someone in and they get locked up in jail. The police had to present something yes, to show probable cause, and it was the burden of, of the state in the presence in, in, of the police officer to prove probable cause. So that had to be based on something. What was it based on? It was based on the officer's affidavit of probable cause, which was, was presented at the little glass window to the magistrate. And, and, then, and then the defendant was told it was given... Miranda warnings. What was said to him precisely about right to counsel in the warnings that the magistrate gave him? 
Well, the warnings go through. They're very similar to Miranda warnings. Um, he's told that he has a right to counsel uh, under Texas statute for this. Um, he is he is warned, as Ms. Benelli said, about uh, examining trial. There, there is a list of yes, things. Yes, but if he's told it, the, the defendant is listening to this, and, and magistrate, you just told me I have a right to counsel. Okay, I would like counsel. And then the magistrate says, no, you're not entitled to counsel. I don't think that's what would happen. I think if he had insisted on counsel being present uh, for the bail portion of the 1517 magistration, I believe um, that they would have gotten somebody to come. And would they have been obligated to get somebody to come? Under Texas statute, they would under, have. Under the uh, Sixth Amendment? No. No. Suppose Texas law provided that there had to be an examining trial within a certain period of time after the magistration unless there was an intervening indictment. Then would you, would you not agree that under those circumstances uh, the defendant would have been entitled to the appointment of counsel shortly after the magistration, at least in order to prepare for the examining trial? We completely agree that if, if that were the case, uh, Coleman, this Court's decisions make absolutely clear he would have been entitled to counsel for an examining trial and would have been — we would have been obligated and would have uh, appointed counsel at a reasonable time before that examining trial so that uh, preparations could take place. For but why, why would the situation be different simply because Texas law doesn't require the examining trial but gives the, the defendant the option of demanding one? Because there is no prejudice to your fair trial rights from not choosing to have an examining trial. We're unaware of any case that has said that there is a Sixth Amendment right to consult with counsel before deciding whether to ask for an examining trial. And, in fact, in Texas, uh, they're very rare because in the very unusual circumstances where somebody asks for one, uh, more often than not, the prosecutor will simply uh, hurry up and, and do an indictment, and so there will be no examining trial that takes that takes place. And that's a, that's a put up or shut up procedure, uh, but it's not something that prejudices your fair trial rights if no examining trial actually takes place. If, I would. If we, if we said that when a defendant is ordered held in custody, that there is then a right of counsel. Would we be contradicting any of our precedents as opposed, say, to extending them? I certainly do believe that the Court would. Uh, I believe that a decision that the right attaches, that there is an initiation of formal judicial proceedings at, at the magistration, would contradict not only Kirby but also Gerstein and Govea. Uh, well, well, no, but my... My assumption was assuming that the defendant is remanded to custody. I added that. It's not clear to me that that makes a constitutional difference in our circumstances. Suppose you were to say that where the state arrests an individual, brings him before a neutral official, and intends and does impose a significant restraint on his liberty, for the purpose of bringing that individual to trial, at, there is a presumption that that, that — forget the presumption — where that happens, the purpose, the primary purpose, primary purpose of bringing the individual to trial, at that point the Sixth Amendment right attaches. Now, the State would not have to give him a lawyer if there was some other purpose 
primary. For example, as in Gouveia, uh, keeping the prison safe. For example, uh, it's quite clear under the circumstances there are 14 people accused. They couldn't have all have done it. They want to investigate further. Or maybe there are other examples. But for the primary purpose, then the right attaches. So you pick up Gerstein and add to Gerstein that additional requirement. What about that? What harm would that cause? What inconvenience would it cause? What difficulties, etc.? I think the primary uh, issue that, with that, Justice uh, Breyer, is that it contradicts what the Court said in Govea. The Court went through a lengthy exegesis in Govea about what interests in particular are protected and talked about this, this expression of a concern about our liberty interest uh, and that the purpose issue was not something that the Court addressed there. It simply said that our Fourth Amendment precedents go to the liberty interest. Our Sixth Amendment speedy trial and other precedents go to the liberty interest. The right to counsel is not specifically a liberty interest protection. It is something, as Chief Justice Roberts mentioned a few minutes ago, as we've set out in our brief, something that protects your right to a fair trial. And there are, there are proceedings that take place along the way that the Court has held are, are critical stages, and we need and want counsel to be present for them. And so we have so dictated. But getting and I behind you, I thought you um, recognized that if he had opted to have this examining trial to determine whether there really was probable cause, that he would be entitled to counsel at that examining trial. And yet that's detached from the fair trial. The whole purpose of it is that then we'll never get to trial. No, I, dis- I disagree with that. Co- um, Coleman itself says that the reason we're requiring counsel for a preliminary hearing or an examining trial, as we call it in Texas, is precisely because there will w- be witnesses, there will be arguments made. You could waive defenses if not made there. That This is very important. So we're going to define even this examining trial or a preliminary hearing, even though it, it comes before an indictment, we're going to define that as an event of attachment solely because your right to a fair trial could very much be prejudiced there. And that, that doesn't exist in this case. And certainly the failure to ask for an um, examining trial does not prejudice your right to a fair trial. Justice Breyer, you asked a, a hypothetical that I would, I would like to address because it is something that happens all the time and I think should inform the Court's decision here. And that is, uh, it is not uncommon, and some statistics that I've seen suggest that it may happen in half of the cases where an individual is arrested, magistrated, released, and no charges are ever brought. So the, the bulk of your 500 protesters are never brought. Under Mr. Rothgary's view of the Sixth Amendment, the county, um, you know, let's say somebody's protesting white-tailed deer hunting in Gillespie County. The county would be required to appoint counsel for all of those individuals, even though... Only if they ask for it. Only if they ask for the lawyer. If they ask for them. And they might... That's why... That would be subject, wouldn't it, to sort of a condition subsequent? Because if it turned out, I mean, we... No counsel is required if there's no incarceration. 
so that even if the right had attached, if it turned out later uh, that there was no incarceration or even attempt to incarcerate, uh, then that would relate back and there wouldn't be a Sixth Amendment violation. Isn't that right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be the answer to the, the partial answer? If, if the Court were to make a rule that depended solely on incarceration, that is true. I don't understand Mr. Rothgary to be making that argument because he was released on And you couldn't, you couldn't because of the fact of bail. Uh, if, you're going to, if, if, if you're going to insist on bail, that in effect is incarceration. But that, the reason I asked the question, which I'd ask you the same, is there are a lot of states, we're, we're told, that do have uh, counsel attach in circumstances similar to this. So they must have some way of dealing with the problem that I raised if it's really a problem. And, and I want to, that's, and I want to, if we're going into this, I think I need to know how this is dealt with. That amicus brief attempts to suggest that Texas's statute is very different from statutes that exist in other cases, in other states. And that's simply not true, Your Honor. Um, I do not understand what happens in each of the, each of those states, but I have at least seen decisions in some of those states that suggest that they don't act that much differently than we do, and that uh, that they do apply a critical stage type analysis in in evaluating. See, so you would have given him a counsel. I mean, in fact, if he'd wanted one, Texas would give him one. So Texas must have. It must not be a problem. The problem. I just. You mean at the magistration? Yeah. If he had asked for one, he would have gotten so, so, so the problem I raised can't be a real problem. May, may I ask this about Texas procedure? Supposing after the magistration he wanted to have the charges dismissed, could he have hired a lawyer to come in and ask the judge to dismiss the charges? Absolutely not, Justice Stevens. There were no charges pending. This, this magistration that occurs in the jail is simply — um, or say he wanted to fi- file a letter saying he wanted to get a release from bond. He said he, he wanted to terminate his c- custody. Is any procedure whatsoever available to a defendant to say, I, I, I want to get this uh, monkey off my back? I've got to, this bond premium here. A release from bond, it, it would have theoretic- theoretically been possible, yes. There could, could he have, get a, have a lawyer appear before the court to ask for that? I don't. Could the judge say, you got to appear yourself? I don't think the judge would have said you, you have to appear yourself. I think he could have personally uh, come If the or prosecutor said you're not entitled to a lawyer there, wouldn't the judge have said you're crazy? Of course he's entitled to a lawyer to come in for this proceeding. Well, that's an issue that doesn't come up because well, Maybe it doesn't come exclude. up. We're talking about theoretical problems here and the question whether he would have had a right to a lawyer asking to get released from bond 20 minutes after the first proceeding ended. His father hired a lawyer from brought him in. Would the lawyer have been allowed to appear? The difference between the Sixth, the sixth Amendment strict requirements and practicalities is a significant one. I don't think the Sixth Amendment would necessarily have required it. The, um, I'm aware Even if he's it's, paying for his own lawyer? It is the same as every other but that's your situation. answer. He would, not have been, he would not have had a right under the Constitution to have a lawyer come in and say, I want to get released from this bond. I find that hard to believe. He would have, a, he would have the same rights as, as, as anybody else, whether retained or um, who But it would not include the right to be represented by counsel, if I understand you correctly. 
It would not be a Sixth Amendment right to counsel. There could be a right, if you otherwise have a lawyer, that the State cannot exclude that lawyer from participating on your behalf. But it would not be an attachment and appointment issue where you're entitled to appointment of counsel to do that. Suppose he's, he's out on bail, but he has a suspicion that this alleged felony, uh, that that wasn't cricket because it was expunged. So he says to the judge, Judge, I want to contest my being held to some kind of criminal process because there's no basis for the charge. So he's out on bail. He has no lawyer, but he wants to contest the state's right to hold him at all. And he asks for a lawyer to help him do that. I think if, if he were to ask somebody, he would be told that you can ask for an examining trial. If you ask for that, we will appoint you a lawyer. Uh, and you will have your examining trial unless the state decides to indict before we, we actually get to it. Why is no. That, uh, no, please. Why is the question of whether the right attaches, which seems to mean different things in different situations, a separate question from what I would think would be the question here, whether he had the right to have counsel appointed for him? Why isn't that the question? And attachment is simply a label that's used to express one of the conditions for having the right to appoint a counsel. I've given this great thought, Justice Alito. In my mind, the only um, doctrinal difference it really makes is the situation that this Court has described in uh, Michigan v. Jackson, which um, I've previously addressed in the Cobb case, which I argued. But in most other circumstances, we think that the analysis is essentially the same because the Court has never said that there is a right, there's a right to um, have the assistance of counsel without um, having a critical stage. In fact, I believe Justice Brennan's, if you will allow me 15 seconds, Justice Brennan's decision in Maine v. Bolton said, recognizing that the right to the assistance of counsel is shaped by the need for the assistance of counsel, we have found that the right attaches at earlier critical stages in the criminal justice process where the results might well settle the accused's fate and reduce the trial itself to a mere formality. So is it then episodic? That is, it, the right is turned on when there's a critical event, uh, and then the critical event is over, no more right to counsel till the next critical event. It's, it's not, you, you have no right to counsel in between those critical events? Once, once a case gets going, I don't believe this Court has ever been presented with a case where um, there's been attachment, there's been some critical stages, and then the State has decided to deny access, and, and we don't think that So you need, all you need is one critical stage, and then you get appointed counsel at that stage, and that counsel will continue thereafter. You don't that, have to... Can you give that me, is the usual course of things. Can you give me some idea, some empirical assessment, or tell me where I could go to find out? Um, as we sit here, how many people are being held in custody uh, after a probable cause determination uh, and with, do not have a counsel appointed for them and do not have a right to have counsel appointed them in, until some other critical phase takes place? In Texas, because the Fair Defense Act permits the appointment of counsel for those who are held in custody, 
All persons who request counsel are appointed counsel within one business day in the large counties and within one within three business days in the smaller counties. Well, then, so that then there, then, then there was just a misapplication of the statute here when this man was held for three days and he requested counsel? No. Section 1.051J authorizes the counties to, win, to not appoint counsel when an individual is released on bail and to await, to await the uh, first critical stage or the initiation of adversary judicial proceedings, whichever occurs first, it says. And, and so once this gentleman was uh, indicted, that would disappear and he would be entitled to a counsel as, as he was appointed counsel immediately upon indictment. Well, I'm talking about the first phase before there was an indictment, just to the probable cause hearing. You say even then there's a, under the Texas statute, there's a right to have counsel in one day? The Texas statute authorizes appointment. Gillespie County is a smaller county, so it's three business days, Your Honor. Well, With, then I'm upon, not upon, sure why we're having this discussion. Well, because Mr. Rothgary was released on bail, and so the, the county was authorized not to appoint. But if, if Mr. Rothgary had immediately upon being um, uh, admitted to bail said, I want a, I was going to say a probable cause hearing, you, you have a different term for it. Uh, uh, the examining trial. E- examining yes. trial. Uh, at that point, uh, under Texas law, the right to counsel within one or three business days would have attached. Once, once an examining trial was, is scheduled, I'm not sure the one or three days, but requests, I think that's what have happened. I, the, the, the Constitution requires appointment of counsel for an examining trial a reasonable time before the examining trial to allow for preparation. Okay. Now, at the, may I, may I, so, sure, please. At the, at the examining trial, is there a charge filed? No, the examining what trial What are they itself, finding probable cause for if they don't know what the charge is? This court in Coleman said that the examining trial, because of the potential harm to a fair trial in the future, uh, would define it as a No, but I realize if, stage. If, if, the, if somebody has got to demonstrate probable cause, the, the probable cause has got to be probable cause to hold someone to answer for a particular charge. So why hasn't there, as a matter of definition, got to be a charge, even on your reasoning, by the time the examining trial is held? Examining trial is an extended version of a probable cause determination. It's not holding That's on right. a charge. That's it's right. Holding it is a probable cause determination, and you've got to have an answer, probable cause for what? Probable cause that a, that a crime has been committed. And so, so in other words, you, you determine whether a crime has been committed without charging the individual with the crime. If, if that were the law, Gerstein would have to be reversed. Well, I'm, t- I'm just asking what you do. Is that the case? Is There's no charge filed? But at the end of the probable cause hearing, you say, well, we, we, the judge says, well, you, you've got probable cause to to hold this person uh, for um, possessing a, a gun after a, um, having been convicted of a felony, but there doesn't happen to be any charge to that effect here. Is, is, is that the state of the, the law, in fact? That is what preliminary hearings and examining trials have always been about. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Um, Ms. Spinelli, you have three minutes. It seems to me that our precedents do say, Kirstein versus Pugh, that the probable cause hearing is not an adversary proceeding where counsel is required. They do. And that if we're going to give you relief, we have to go beyond what Gerstein says. 
I don't believe so, Justice Kennedy. Um, it's correct that Gerstein says that the probable cause determination made under Gerstein is not itself a critical stage, and we're not contending otherwise. The Gerstein determination is something separate from the initial appearance that occurred here. A Gerstein determination is made for the purpose of determining whether there was probable cause for an arrest. It can be made ex parte. It's essentially the equivalent of what happens prior to arrest when a magistrate decides whether there's probable cause to issue a warrant. What happened here, by contrast, was after arrest and after the police had decided to hold Mr. Rothgary, he was brought before a magistrate, he was officially informed of the accusation against him, and at that time he acquired the right to contest the accusation against him in an examining trial, which we believe shows that he was accused within the meaning of the Sixth Amendment and a prosecution had begun. And we are not contending that that initial proceeding was itself a critical stage where counsel was required, um, and it's not necessary to contend that in order to prevail on the point that that was when a prosecution commenced, which is the only question that we believe is properly before this Court and the only one we're asking it to resolve. So Texas would be better off if they didn't have a magistration proceeding at all. If they didn't have a proceeding to alert the the individual the charges against him, they did not have a proceeding to read him his rights, they did not have a determination of probable cause. They'd be better off if they didn't do any of that. I mean, I think you're suggesting, Mr. Chief Justice, that reaffirming the rule adopted in in Jackson would create, you know, a perverse incentive for states to do away with this proceeding. I don't believe that that's the case, because as Justice Breyer observed, um, 45 jurisdictions already follow the rule of appointing counsel at or immediately following the initial appearance, which the NECDL brief lays out and which neither respondent nor its state amici have contested. Well, what, what's in it for the state to provide this additional layer? Because, of course, the person gets Miranda warnings when he's arrested. Um, the, and, and so why, why should the state do The initial appearance serves a specific substantive purpose, which I think is well described in the Seventh Circuit's decision in Armstrong, cited on page 15 of our reply brief, which is, this is the proceeding at which the defendant is informed you are now a criminal defendant. This is the accusation against you, and these are your rights as a defendant in a criminal proceeding. And for that reason, as the Armstrong decision says, it's commonly recognized across jurisdictions as the inception of a formal prosecution. And we believe that's the rule that this Court has already laid out in Brewer and Jackson and should reaffirm today. Why don't you take an extra minute? We've eaten up your rebuttal time. Um, of, of course, absolutely. I mean, just, just to respond to one other question that arose uh, during the course of respondents' argument, I think it's important to understand that in Texas, as in other jurisdictions, there are two phases in a felony prosecution. There's an initial phase that commences in a magistrate court where a document setting out the charges will be filed, either by the police or by a prosecutor, and the magistrate at that point has jurisdiction over that criminal case. It's only 
later that an indictment or information will be filed in the general trial court with jurisdiction to enter final judgment. But this Court has repeatedly rejected the notion that a prosecution begins only in that second phase. It rejected it expressly in Moore. It rejected it in Coleman, in Brewer, in Jackson, and in statements in Kirby and McNeil. So that cannot be the rule. Um, Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. The case is submitted.